Good morning. It's good to be with you here today as we walk through this little series that we're calling Contradictions. It's interesting, just this weekend, you may have noticed in the news uh, one of the great contradictions in recent history. Muhammad Ali uh, passed away on Friday. One of the most powerful human beings uh, that walked the planet for many years, uh, stricken with Parkinson's disease, uh, and ultimately passed away on Friday at the age of 74. Life is full of contradictions, isn't it? As we consider this idea, I just want to start by kind of level setting the room and seeing if we can all think together about some of the common contradictions in life. So whether you're here uh, at the Lake Forest Sanctuary or up in the 01 or at Crossroads or Highland Park, uh, I'll invite you just to kind of play along with me here for a second. I'm going to ask you two questions. Uh, They're not hard questions, so don't get nervous. Uh, Here's the first one. How many of you would agree that it's generally not a a good thing to find your value in life by comparing yourself with others. That, that's not a good thing to find your value by comparing yourself with others. Yeah, we, if we think about that for a second, we would agree that's generally not the way to gather your, your value in life. All right, here's the second question. Even though we believe that, how many of us find ourselves in the places that we go and the people we interact with comparing ourselves with the people around us? Yeah, it's almost like a one-to-one ratio, right? We, we do this. We know we shouldn't compare, and yet we do. I don't know if you're into personality tests like Myers-Briggs or Disc Profile or Strengths Finders or things like this. Uh, I recently took one called Enneagram, which is a really interesting personality profile. It gets at your core motivations, and, and I fall into this camp uh, of people who tend to compare themselves to others based on what we do, based on our accomplishments or achievements in life. So I naturally walk into a room, and, and as I get to know people, I begin to compare the things that I've accomplished for my age and sort of where I am in life and, and compare that relative to others that are like me. Others of you are wired differently. Uh, Some of you walk into a room and you value peace and sort of inner tranquility. You're a natural peacemaker. So you tend to compare the sense of peace that you feel with the sense of peace that you imagine others around you feel. That can be a dangerous comparison because you can't really tell what's going on in someone's heart. Others of us walk into a room and we, we value image. So we spend a lot of time on the image that we present to others and we compare the image that we have crafted with the image that we see in others. We compare ourselves all the time. And sadly, when we come into a church, I think we may compare ourselves to others more than in most places in life. We compare how much we know about the Bible with how much we assume other people know We compare how many good works that we've done in our life compared with the good works that we see other people doing. We compare kind of the spiritual language that we can speak with the kinds of words and ideas that other people can speak in. And beneath all of those comparisons, we're really comparing our faith with others, aren't we? How much faith do I really have? And that becomes hard when we see others that appear to have really great Faith. You might see someone up here leading worship uh, on a Sunday morning, and, and you might think, my goodness, they're singing from the heart. They seem to really connect with this, and they, re- they must really love the Lord. And I just, I don't know if I, I feel that. Or we see great spiritual leaders like a Billy Graham or a Mother Teresa, and we think, my goodness, they're so spiritual. If that's what faith looks like, I, I don't know if I have that. 
Or we look to great characters in the Bible like Moses or David or Elijah and we think, wow, the faith that they had. If that's what faith is, I wonder if I really even have faith. We compare what we experience to others. And we fall into that trap quite a lot, don't we? And we live in that contradiction even though we know we're not supposed to. Well, I think the Bible has a lot to say about this trap of comparison. And we're going to see a little bit of what the Bible has to say by considering this story of Jesus and Zacchaeus from Luke chapter 19. So I'll invite you uh, to turn in a Bible. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 19. If you don't, uh, there are Bibles uh, around you uh, or on your phone. So everybody has, uh, you know, well, most of us have a smartphone with us and you could dial up a a Bible right there on your phone. That's, That's pretty great, isn't it? So turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles and we'll go to Luke chapter 19 together. Incidentally, I think it's good to actually see where these things show up, uh, whether it's an electronic Bible or a paper Bible, no matter, so that we're seeing where uh, these ideas come from that we're looking at uh, from the Bible. So Luke chapter 19, uh, and we're going to read this story. I'm going to read it in scenes because I think this account shows up in three distinct scenes, like the scenes of a movie or the scenes of a play. So we're going to read scene one together, and this is verses one through six of Luke 19, and it says this. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. This is the first scene that we find of Jesus interacting with Zacchaeus. And here's kind of how it came to be. So Jesus is on a journey. Jesus began his earthly ministry when he was preaching and teaching up in the northern regions of uh, Israel and Judea, where the Jewish people lived, uh, in a town called Capernaum. And he suffered and died on the cross in Jerusalem, which was kind of down in the south. But he, so when we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's really the story of Jesus preaching and teaching and telling parables as he was making his way from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. Now Jericho, where this account takes place, is just north of Jerusalem. So Jesus is almost there. And and you know that also because we're almost to the end of the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus is getting close to the time when he's going to go to the cross to make payment for the sins of the world. And we're beginning to see some climactic scenes in the life of his teaching. And, And that's what we find when Jesus enters the town of Jericho and interacts with Zacchaeus. As Jesus was preaching and teaching, he was picking up crowds along the way. So you can envision Jesus coming into the town of Jericho And he's got a large crowd around him, a crowd of followers that are listening to his teaching. The crowd was so big, in fact, that Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus. And here's Zacchaeus. He's, he's, we're told, a short man, small in stature, but not at all small in importance. Uh, In the area, he was called a chief tax collector, which means he was of some rank among the tax collectors in the area. And and the tax collectors, um, this was not a, a job that was highly regarded 
in this society because what their job was was to work for the Roman Empire and to exact taxes of the Jewish people. And the tax collectors made their money by increasing the requirement of the tax that Rome required and and they would take home that excess. And so it was really just an open door for them to charge however much tax that they wanted to and trim that off and fill their pockets. And so Zacchaeus had done a good job of this to the point that he was notably wealthy. So here's a a small man, but a man who is of large importance and and of great wealth in the area. And he was curious. We don't know why he was curious, but he was curious to see who Jesus was, but he couldn't see him because the crowd was so large. And so Zacchaeus did something that's really quite odd. Now, if you've been around church for a while or if you grew up in church, you might not think this as odd because you grew up singing songs about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is probably the closest thing to a cartoon character uh, that we have in our minds from the Bible. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that day, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. A lot of you could quote that little song right along with me, couldn't you? But Zacchaeus was far from a cartoon character. Here's a real man, and he did something that in real time and space would have been very strange. Almost as strange as um, maybe a mayor of a town or someone really important in one of our uh, local towns this past Memorial Day climbing up in a tree in order to see a float passing by for the parade. If you were at, at a parade and you looked up and you saw someone in a tree, a grown man, a dignified grown man up in that tree, you'd think, okay, that's a little strange. And so this is what Zacchaeus did. He climbed up in a tree and we're told it was a sycamore tree. Before my family and I moved to this area, we lived in Clearwater, Florida, and we had sycamore trees in our yard. At least someone told me they were sycamore trees and I believed them. Uh, Well, they had these big leaves, big thick leaves. And when those leaves would fall in the fall, which in Clearwater, Florida, that's about 10 minutes in January, uh, the leaves would fall. And because they were so thick, they were a real pain in the neck to rake up. Big, thick leaves full on the tree, and they would just cover the yard, and they would fill up bags really fast. They were just awful leaves, but they were, they were really thick. And, and I can imagine if you're looking for a tree to hide in where you're going to do something a little strange, maybe you don't really want to be seen, a sycamore tree might be a great one because I don't know if Middle Eastern sycamores are like South Florida sycamores, but if they had this thick shade cover of leaves, I imagine Zacchaeus got up there so that he could spot Jesus, but he would have the best chance of not being seen. And I envision Zacchaeus sort of playing this hide-and-seek game with Jesus. He was spiritually curious. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but I'm guessing He didn't want Jesus or anybody else to see who he was. And he did what spiritually curious people do. They kind of play this hide-and-seek game with Jesus. And I wonder how many of us might be in that category today. You're not climbing a tree. You're sitting in church. But I wonder if you're playing that same sort of hide-and-seek game game. Like, you want to see what's going on? You've heard about Jesus. You, you see something about these people that are Christians. You've heard something about the message of Jesus. Maybe you have a family member who encourages you to come to church, and you're curious, not quite ready to be a part of following Jesus, but you're curious enough that you want to see what's going on. But you like the idea of kind of remaining 
hidden because you don't want Jesus to see you. Or do you? I have this image when I was a kid of playing hide and seek. And I had found a great hiding place in my parents' house. It was under a stairwell. You know how when there's sort of closets under stairwells that kind of come to a point? Well, I was hiding deep down in that closet under the stairs. There's a big toy box in front of me. This was a great hiding place. It was, in fact, too great of a hiding place because I remember never being found. (laughs) Have you ever played hide and seek and you never got found? It's kind of disappointing, isn't it? Because as much as you want to have a good hiding place, you really do want to be found. That's kind of the point of the game. So we have this longing to be found. And I think Zacchaeus had a little bit of that longing too, because sure enough, Jesus found Zacchaeus, didn't he? Jesus came along and when he made it to the place where Zacchaeus was, he looked up in the tree, he noticed Zacchaeus, he called him by name, he called him down out of the tree. And did you notice Zacchaeus' response? He received Jesus joyfully, came right down out of the tree, and in a joyful way, accepted Jesus' invitation to come to his home. Now, that's not the kind of response that we would imagine, right? I mean, if you were caught up in a tree, imagine you had climbed a tree uh, this past Memorial Day, and somebody you know, stopped, and the whole parade stopped right in front of you, and you're up in a tree trying to see the parade, and now everybody's looking at you, You'd feel a little embarrassed, wouldn't you? We would naturally expect, if we didn't already know this story, that Jesus or that Zacchaeus would have been just mortified. Oh my goodness. He stopped, called me down out of the tree. Everybody's looking. You would think he would sort of slink down the tree and just be horrendously mortified. But he wasn't. He joyfully received Jesus. I want to ask a question, and I want to ask a question in relation to this idea of comparison. With what you see of Zacchaeus so far, how do you compare yourself with Zacchaeus? Because I think some of us get stuck in this spot. Some of us get stuck in this place of spiritual curiosity where we kind of play this hide-and-seek game with Jesus. And we're just a little bit too embarrassed to get down out of the tree. And and I think we just live in this stuck place. Zacchaeus did respond, and he received Jesus. But is that the response that you have or you have had? Has your spiritual curiosity led you to a place where you've taken that step of getting over your embarrassment, of getting over whatever that hurdle is in your life to receive Jesus, to come in and be the Lord of your life. I think many of us get stuck here. But I think many of us also get stuck here in a different way. I think many of us have done what Zacchaeus did. I think many of us have been found by Jesus and we have received him. And we have decided to follow him. In in essence, become a part of that crowd who is following after Jesus and hearing his teaching. But having done that, we find ourselves asking the question, is this it? I mean, I've exercised some measure of faith. I've, I've decided to follow Jesus, to receive him. And yet, when I compare my faith to the others around me, I, I just don't know. 
And we're kind of stuck in this questioning phase. We're spiritually curious. We've kind of played hide and seek. We've responded to Jesus, but is this all there is to faith? I wonder how you find yourself today. Well, that's not the end of the story. We're going to continue on and we're going to see some new things emerge as we look at scene two. And scene two is a short scene in the story. It's just verse seven. So we're going to see this. So here's the crowd and they've seen Zacchaeus come down out of the tree. We've seen him receive Jesus and they've seen Jesus go off with Zacchaeus to their home. And this is their response. Verse seven says, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Some of us, when we compare ourselves to others, don't feel like we come up short. In fact, we have the opposite response. When we compare ourselves to others, we think that we surpass them in their faith. And we come a little bit like this crowd who assumes that they have such great faith that they can play judge and jury to the associations that Jesus makes. And it's interesting, the associations that Jesus does make. So Jesus has just gone in to be the guest in the home of a great, a noteworthy sinner. Here's a tax collector, a public extortioner, and a a wealthy man. And this is who Jesus chooses to go and spend his time with. And this is not out of character for Jesus. In fact, this is what Jesus has done all along in his ministry. And it's interesting also that the tax collectors around Jesus, they tended to be ready to receive him. Early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus called a tax collector named Matthew to be one of his disciples. And when Matthew received that call, he threw a great feast and invited all of his tax-collecting friends over to have a feast with Jesus. And when the crowd saw it at that time, they grumbled and they said, what is Jesus doing dining at the table with tax collectors and sinners? And then later, as Jesus was teaching and preaching through the towns and villages, we see this in Luke chapter 15, the crowds were beginning to gather and part of that crowd, they weren't the religious proud folks, they were the tax collectors and sinners. And as the, the spiritually proud folks looked around and they saw more and more tax collectors and sinners gathering around Jesus, they complained and they grumbled. And they said, what is Jesus doing spending time with these tax collectors and sinners? It sort of became a category of people in the Gospels. And one commentator says, uh, the religious followers of Jesus, they liked Jesus' miracles, but they didn't at all like the personal associations that Jesus came to and spent time with. And in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, the writer does something unique. Beginning with that complaint at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 for the next five chapters, we see what many Bible scholars call the Gospel of the Outcast. And what it is is a series of interactions of parables or teachings or personal interactions that Jesus had with various outcasts of society. And Luke is making the point as he writes this gospel that Jesus came to seek this kind of person. In the words of Jesus, he came to seek the lost sheep. He didn't come to seek those who compared themselves to others and found themselves to be superior. He came to seek those who compared themselves to others and found themselves wanting. And as we just survey those interactions in those five chapters, it's interesting to see who these lost sheep were. 
They were the wayward who had strayed from the straight and narrow path. They were the financially strapped who cling to every penny. They were those who'd wasted time and money making stupid decisions in life. They were those who know a lot about business, but very little about God. They were those who dutifully served for a lifetime in a thankless job. It was those who were too sick to work, and so they had to live on handouts from others. It was those who had diseases that isolated them from society. It was those who were victims of a broken legal system, and it was those who were perpetrators of a broken legal system. It was those who were too young to be included with the grown-ups, and it was those who were too broken to be included with the healthy. It was those who were too powerful to humble themselves. And it was those who were too rich on earth to seek treasure in heaven. These were the lost sheep that Jesus came to save. And these were the ones that the crowd stood back and compared themselves to and said, we don't want to have anything to do with that. And so they grumbled and they complained. And they sort of became like, the Simon Cowell of the ancient Near East. They were sort of scrutinizing and criticizing every performance that Jesus gave as he was calling the lost sheep to himself. And so I want to ask you, how do you compare with the crowd? Do you see something of yourself in your comparison with those around you? Do you find yourself to be just a little bit spiritually proud? And you don't so much like all of these tax collectors and sinners who are receiving grace from Jesus when you have been working so hard, maybe for a lifetime. And some of us get stuck here as well when we compare ourselves to others around us. We can get stuck getting spiritually curious, playing hide and seek, but we can also get stuck being spiritually proud, playing judge and jury. But thankfully the story doesn't stop there. There's another scene to this story and it shows up beginning in verse 8. And here's how the scene unfolds. We have Zacchaeus standing and he says to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Before Zacchaeus, the last encounter that Jesus had with a rich person didn't go nearly so well. If you remember in Luke chapter 18, just a chapter before this, Jesus encountered a man who was very much like Zacchaeus. He was a man of considerable authority. He was also a man of considerable wealth. But unlike Zacchaeus, here was a man who had followed God's commands for his entire lifetime. So in that way, he was in a better position than Zacchaeus. But when Jesus called him not to trust in his wealth, but rather give his wealth to the poor and then come and follow after Jesus, that was just too much for this rich man to take. We're told he walked away sad and disheartened, unwilling to follow Jesus. And in response to that account, Jesus said something profound. He said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom. In fact, it's so hard, it's like a camel passing through the eye of a needle. 
And then those around who heard Jesus say that thought, well, who in the world then can be saved? And Jesus said, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And so what we see in Zacchaeus is we see somebody who has considerable wealth, considerable power, who found his identity in that wealth and in that power, experiencing the impossible. In fact, he's no longer playing a game of hide and seek. He's playing a game of threading the needle. He, he thread the needle of faith when he gave half of his goods to the poor, when he committed to give back four times to anybody that he had cheated. This is an unbelievable, incredible act of repentance, and it's a whole different ballgame for Zacchaeus in this way. And I wonder how you compare yourself to Zacchaeus now. I wonder how you compare yourself to the act of faith that Zacchaeus just demonstrated in giving away all that he had. All of those things that gave him identity and purpose and value in life. I'll be honest with you. When I compare myself with Zacchaeus at this point, I feel like I come up utterly and completely short. I don't know about you, but I've never committed nearly the self-sacrificing act of faith that Zacchaeus did. And, And I find that comparing myself to someone like Zacchaeus leaves me wondering, what do I do if that's what faith looks like? I don't know if I have it. And if you didn't get stuck at spiritual curiosity, and if you didn't get stuck at being spiritually proud, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that most of us get stuck here. Because our spiritual responsiveness has never looked anything like what we see in Zacchaeus. And we wonder, is that what I'm supposed to do? Many of you might be hanging on to your wallets right now, waiting for me to make a strong appeal to give away half of what you own to the church, to the poor, to get out and find everybody that you've ever wronged and pay them back four times what you owe them. But I don't think that's the point. I don't think the point of this story is that we would come away comparing ourselves to Zacchaeus or anyone else. Else, And I say that because of the last two verses of this story, because the scene closes like this. Jesus stands up and in response to Zacchaeus' statement of faith, he says this. Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It turns out, that Zacchaeus wasn't the only one playing hide-and-seek. It turns out that Zacchaeus wasn't the one primarily doing the seeking when he climbed up in a tree looking to see Jesus. In fact, as it turns out, this story really primarily isn't about Zacchaeus at all. It's about Jesus. And when Jesus stands at the end of this account, he explains to us what's happened. What we've just seen go on in the interaction with him and Zacchaeus. And he explains it this way. He says, what you've seen is the son of man, that's himself, seeking and saving the lost. 
Did you notice the first thing that Jesus said to Zacchaeus when he found him up in the tree? The first word out of his mouth was Zacchaeus' name. He called him Zacchaeus. Do you know what Zacchaeus means? Zacchaeus is rooted in the Hebrew language and it means clean or pure or righteous one. Of course, the actual Zacchaeus was nothing like that when Jesus found him. But Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus and said, righteous one, come down out of that tree for I must stay at your house today. The son of man came to seek the lost and he found him. And we don't get the impression at all that Jesus was surprised to find Zacchaeus. In fact, we find just the opposite. Jesus came to Jericho to find Zacchaeus because of what he says to him immediately following. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down from that tree, for I must stay at your house today. Now, most of us, when we're reading this in an English Bible or or another modern language Bible, we miss the significance of that statement. But for the original readers in the original text that this was written in would have noticed something familiar in that statement that Jesus made to Zacchaeus. It's the same thing Jesus said when he was a 12-year-old boy. And he was lost and his parents couldn't find him. And when they finally found Jesus, he was in the temple talking with the teachers of the law. And he said to his parents, didn't you know I must be at my father's house? Literally, that translation is, did you not know it is necessary that I spend time in my father's house. And then later, when Jesus was beginning his ministry, he was teaching in in Capernaum, which was the town where, in essence, his public teaching ministry began. And he said to the crowds there, I must leave and go and preach the gospel to the other towns as well, because that is the purpose for which I came. Literally, it is necessary that I go and preach the gospel to the other towns as well. And then as Jesus continued his ministry, he was instructing his disciples about his coming death on the cross. And he said to them, The Son of Man must suffer and die and in three days rise again. Literally, it is necessary that I suffer and die and then rise again in three days. And then he comes into Jericho and he says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. Literally, it is necessary that I stay at your house. Just like it was necessary that Jesus move into the temple to fulfill his prophetic calling as a young boy, just like it was necessary for Jesus to proclaim the gospel, the message of salvation to all of the towns around, just like it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross and die so that you and I and sinners throughout all of history can be saved, so also in the same way it was necessary that Jesus stay at the home of Zacchaeus on that day in that town. It's what theologians call the divine imperative. And what that means is in the divine wisdom, in the divine plan for all of history, it was imperative that Jesus stay at Zacchaeus' home because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we find Jesus seeking and finding Zacchaeus. And then we find Jesus saying, salvation has come. To this man this day, for he too is a son of Abraham. When he called him a son of Abraham, he said, just because he's a tax collector, just because he's a sinner, does not disqualify him 
from receiving salvation. Just because he's a lost sheep like we all are, that didn't disqualify him from receiving salvation. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And I think the crux of what we find in this story happens in between the scenes. I've already said, I think we missed the point if we think that we come to this to compare ourselves with Zacchaeus, but I think we find the point in this divine imperative of Jesus staying at the home of Zacchaeus. We don't know how much time transpired between the time Zacchaeus came down out of the tree, he and Jesus went off to Zacchaeus' home, and then the time that Zacchaeus announced this statement of faith. It was probably a, 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 a matter of hours. But it was long enough for Jesus to penetrate Zacchaeus' heart and deliver him from the very bondage that was holding him back from salvation. Delivered him from relying on his wealth. Delivered him from relying on his power. And the same power that Jesus exercised to transform Zacchaeus in a matter of a day is what Jesus wants to exercise in your life and in mine. Because just like Zacchaeus was lost in depending on his wealth and his power, you and I are lost in looking at something in our life to give us value. For me, without Jesus, I'm lost depending on what I do or accomplish in life to find my salvation. Without Jesus, you may be lost comparing some sense of inner peace that you're looking for compared to what you see in others. Without Jesus, you may be lost trying to uphold a certain image. Jesus met Zacchaeus at his point of need and transformed him. Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This story is about the transforming power of Jesus. And it's a spectacular story because he exercised it in just a matter of hours for Zacchaeus. And what we find in life is it's normally not like that. It is for some. It was for Paul. Saul was a persecutor of Christians, and in a matter of moments, he went from a persecutor of those who followed after Jesus to one who was a preacher of the gospel of Jesus. It also happens for some in our day. There's an instant transformation. But if we're honest, most of us experience it more slowly than that. Most of us who feel stuck having received Jesus but wondering if this is all there is, we feel stuck because we don't experience this transformation happening in the way that we see it in such a spectacular way. But I think the point that we should take away from this account today is that Jesus is no less seeking for you and for me than he was Zacchaeus. And the divine imperative, the necessity that Jesus stay at Zacchaeus' home long enough to transform him from the inside out, Jesus has that same power when we invite him to, in essence, stay with us. I'm in a small group, like many of you are, and just this past week, we were talking about something that shows up in a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And it was this idea that in life we experience peaks and troughs. We experience mountaintops and valleys. We experience highs and lows. And it's in those lows that we wonder where God is. But the point that C.S. Lewis was making is that in those troughs is where God is doing his most important work. 
And many of us spend a whole lot of our life in the trough where we don't feel things happening. We begin to wonder where Jesus is. And so the message I want to declare to you today is that Jesus came to seek you and he will not fail in his mission. He came to save you. He will not fail in his mission. And though you may be in a trough and though you may be experiencing this gradually over a period of years, Jesus will not fail. In John 15, he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. And just like a branch requires a tree in order to bear fruit, it's the one who is attached to me and abides in me for a lifetime that begins to bear much fruit. That's how it normally happens. In Revelation chapter 3, we find Jesus saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone not just the Zacchaeuses of the world, not just the great spiritual leaders of the world. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Invite Jesus to come and stay. And very specifically, invite Jesus to come and transform that area of your life that you depend on for your value, for your, in essence, salvation. What is that for you that you compare yourself with others? And invite Jesus to stay there, to change that and begin to trust in him and what he's doing rather than what we naturally want to compare ourselves to others. That's where we find his grace. That's where we will be saved. Let me pray for us. Lord, we all have lostness. And I pray that you would seek and save the lost today. Lord, give us the courage to step down out of the tree. Give us the humility to lay down our pride. Give us the transforming grace to turn toward you in those areas that are the hardest to turn. And we ask for that grace today in the mighty power of Jesus who did come to seek us out. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.